Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. Leela Lewis. I'm the medical director of Adventist World Radio and a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist. And it is a pleasure to have you with us this evening. Level Up, the first debut program. What is Level Up? Why is it existing? Where did it come from? Level Up is a follow-up to the very successful medical symposiums that just finished last Sunday. At your request, the question came in, how are we to deal with many of the concerns that we have globally as related to this COVID-19 crisis? We want a respectable scientific location where we can trust to get answers. Well, as a result of that question and request, Level Up came into existence. We will be meeting every Sunday on an ongoing basis at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, as we address your concerns and your questions. Level Up is sponsored or hosted by Adventist World Radio and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in holistic health, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being, and none can be separated. For good health incorporates all. And with that said, I am very happy and excited to invite the president of Adventist World Radio, my good friend, Dr. Dwayne McKee, to give us opening prayer and opening remarks as we begin this very exciting program. Dr. Thank you very much. It's so exciting to see you here with us and have you with Adventist World Radio. And I, I want to welcome you and thank you for being a part of our ministry and, and also Pathways to Health. It's really to thank see what you. God is doing around the world. And thank you so much. Welcome to each one of you. I'd like to have prayer with you, and we pray that God will richly bless as we learn together how, how to be healthier and, and live for Jesus in a better way. In Christ's name, and let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus who died for us. We pray for, for this program tonight that your name will be uplifted. Thank you for Dr. Leela and Dr. Lee and Pastor Mark Finley, Dr. Finley. And may this be a wonderful experience as we grow closer to you and learn how to be healthier. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. McKee. Well, as we said, we have some very difficult questions to answer. The quarantine dilemma. The quarantine dilemma. Why is it a dilemma? A historical approach to a current controversy is what we're going to be discovering and investigating tonight. But why is quarantine, social distancing, isolation, whatever term you wish to call it, why is it a dilemma? Well, on one side, as we know, and as we suspect, as we decrease social distancing, it increases our risk of exposure, clearly, because we're coming in closer contact with more people, for more exposure, thereby more infection possibility, thereby increased mortality. But on the other hand, quarantine in and of itself could be causing deleterious effects. In fact, it is causing, as we'll discover tonight, increases in alcohol consumption, depression, anxiety, and thereby increase in suicide, domestic violence, child abuse. These are all very good concerns. Of course, the ramifications of financial devastation. We need to investigate this closer. Let's look at a deeper level. Let's go level up, one up, and find out some of the answers to these questions. Well, in order to discover this quarantine dilemma or investigate it further, we need to ask the question, where did COVID-19 come from? When did it come into existence? And how do we know it's a virus at all anyway? 
Well, to answer those questions, I am very excited to introduce a good friend of mine and a very intellectual individual, Dr. Steve Lee. I dare say Dr. Lee is one of the best surgeons I've had the opportunity of working with. Dr. Steve Lee is the vice chair of the ear, nose, and throat department at Loma Linda University. He has his doctorate in medicine from Loma Linda University, and he also has his PhD in molecular biology and biochemistry. Dr. Lee, can you tell us a little bit about where did COVID-19 come about and how do we know it's a virus and its infectivity to begin with? Yeah, great question, Layla. Um, so what we know is that the virus started when well, we first encountered it in the city of Wuhan, China, the doctors there started seeing a cluster of patients that had um, respiratory issues showing up in their hospitals in December of 2019. Now, they saw more and more of these patients showing up in their hospitals, and they tested all these patients for influenza, RSV, adenovirus, all the other pathogens that we would normally expect to be causing this kind of um, symptoms, and none of them came up positive. So at this point, they were wondering what they were dealing with. And what they did is they sent some samples from uh, the lung lavages, bronchial alveolar lavage, and sent it to various uh, labs. While they were doing that, uh, this is a slide from the Lancet article that was published earlier this year. And this shows the first 41 patients that they found. And you see that the first patient they knew about was back in uh, December 1 of 2019. And the last one they saw started having symptoms on January 1st. And then they tried to see what did these patients have in common. And a significant portion of these patients were exposed to this um, wet market, the Hunan seafood market exposure. So they were thinking maybe it came from that market. Um, so what they wanted to do next is find out what was causing this. And what they did is they sent those samples to labs and the technology has increased to the point now that we can do um, what's called next generation sequencing and we can sequence the entire uh, genomes of organisms very quickly. And they did this sequencing of these uh, samples and they found out that a sequence matched up with a coronavirus, but no known coronavirus that we knew of before. And then they wanted to make sure, is this a virus or is it just um, uh, nucleic acids that are just found in the lungs? So what they did in this other paper is they took samples and they grew it on um, respiratory virus, um, respiratory epithelium in culture, and it created more virus. So they know now that it's not only just the nucleic acids of a virus, it is an active virus. And then this work has been duplicated thousands of times now. Virology labs all over the world have now also isolated the virus and sequenced it. And now there's 5,000 different strains of this virus that are out and have been sequenced. So Dr. I just want to ask a quick question. Yes. Um, coming back to what, what we just showed, this last slide. Yes. So essentially what you're saying is that the coronavirus is mutating. And these are the different strains of how many mutations have taken place since that very beginning uh, event or a, a case. Is that correct? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. So the picture you're seeing here is something called a phylogenetic tree. And the very bottom uh, left-hand corner right here is the original strain. And then these are branches where they mutate and they mutate again and again and again. Now, most of these mutations 
are inconsequential. They're in non-coding regions. They don't affect how the virus works or how it functions. That's why, although there's 5,000 different strains, most of them are very similar or basically identical in terms of function. Although there are some new studies recently showing that um, there have been some consequential mutations that may become clinically significant. So, so just, uh -huh. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so then just continue the timeline. So this happened in December. Around January 11th and January 12th, China let the World Health Organization know that they were dealing with a new virus. At that point, the kind of important thing is they did not tell the World Health Organization that they thought that there was person-to-person -person spread. They were still thinking that it was uh, a unique event from an animal to a person. So they didn't know, they, didn't, they weren't thinking that it was an important virus at that point. Um, then by January 20th, we started seeing cases in other countries. So Korea and the US had their first case on January 20th. Then on January 22nd, uh, we China informed the World Health Organization that there was person-to-person -person transmission and they locked down the city of, of Wuhan on the 24th. And then on the 30th of January, uh, the WHO declares it a public health emergency of international concern, which is AKA pandemic. And then um, in, in February, most countries started to restrict travel from China to try to protect themselves. And then in March, most countries started doing internal lockdowns or shelter at home orders. And then currently, this is where we're at. Uh, this is data that's um, current as of this morning. Uh, there's almost 5 million cases worldwide and about 300,000 deaths. And this is the graph of the daily new cases. And so you see down here in January, February, March, there's very small numbers. And then there was a big ramp up throughout March. And then we've stabilized at around 80,000 cases a day. And the stabilization is probably because of all the, um, the government lockdowns and shutdowns that have been done across the world or else you'd see more of a parabolic curve here would be the natural course of the virus. That's fascinating, Dr. Lee. So basically what I take from what you're saying is, again, it started in Wuhan, China. There were a lot of ideas as far as where it originally came from, and we'll be talking about some of those in just a few minutes. Was it a mutated strain? Uh, was it mutated on purpose? Um, there's a lot of different ideas and theories out there. Yeah. But one thing that came out of this that is unfortunate is this racial profiling. You know, it it uh, it seems to follow sometimes, you know, when we don't know exactly what things are or where things are coming from, it seems that sometimes we respond with uh, various forms of racial profiling, whether that be to the Asian community and or specifically to the Chinese community. I'm going to invite my good friend and mentor, Dr. Mark Finley. I refer to him as Pastor Mark. Pastor Mark is a theologian. He has his doctorate in divinity. He's very versed in history, international speaker, and special assistant to the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Pastor Mark, in your exploration of history, have you seen in the past where pandemics uh, and racial profiling sometimes go hand in hand? And how should a Christian or an individual concerned with humanitarian communities, how should we respond? Well, thank you, Dr. Layla. That is a very significant uh, question. 
When you look at the pandemics that have taken place throughout history, we have had about seven major pandemics. The first one was in the second century, 165, the Antonio uh, pandemic. And then you go to 265, there was another major pandemic. And you go throughout history in 541, another one, you go up to 1300s, a bubonic plague. In each of these pandemics, there have been people who have been scapegoated. I will give you one good example. In 1347, you had the bubonic plague that came through uh, Europe. At that time, many of the Jewish communities were not experiencing the same death rates, much less death rates than the larger European community. And so the Jews were blamed. They were scapegoated for the bubonic plague. At one time in one of the European countries, 2,000 Jews were burned to death. Just horrible. Uh, on another, there were 510 Jewish communities that were destroyed during that time because they were scapegoated. They were blamed for this. Um, the Jews, of course, uh, had far less uh, death from the plagues, largely because of three reasons. One is they did social isolation. They were usually socially isolated. They had based that on the Levitical laws, Leviticus 13 and 14. Also, they were very cleanly. They, their Jewish mandates required the washing of hands before you eat, and they were very cleanly in that area. And also, they were very careful with their contact with others and their clothing. Um, they were very meticulous about keeping it clean. One of the reasons from the Christian ethic, that as you look back on history, from the Christian ethic, every human being has value. Every human being has worth in God's sight. And it's called the image of God. From a Christian perspective, we believe that every human being is created in the image of God. So any kind of racial profiling, whether it's the racial profiling of the Jews during the bubonic plague, the racial profiling today of the Chinese, is a total violation of that Christian ethic because every human being, whatever background, whatever culture, whatever ethnicity, whatever language group, we believe have been created in the image of God and every human being should be treated with worth and dignity and the respect that comes from being created in God's image. Thank you, Pastor Mark. That, that's so beautiful. And even when I think back to the 1918 pandemic, we spent the last four weeks investigating that with the medical symposium, which by the way, if you haven't had a chance to watch those demonstrations, we do ask you, please go to awr.org forward slash health and you can access those archived videos. But we spent a lot of time talking about the 1918 pandemic. Unfortunately, many people referred to it as the Spanish flu. Again, there was some racial profiling even then. So it's something we definitely want to pay close attention to and be careful of. Now, Dr. Lee, I want to come back to this question of the SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID-19 situation. SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID syndrome is not the very first coronavirus that we humans have come encountered with. How many other times have we come encountered with the coronavirus, Dr. Lee? Yeah, so that's absolutely right. I'm going to throw the slide up here. Um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is actually the seventh coronavirus that people have been exposed to. There are four 
uh, with these funny names, OC43, HKU1, 229E, and NL63. These are uh, coronaviruses that cause the common cold. They have very mild symptoms. They've been with us for a long time. Um, and then there's three viruses that have been more recently encountered. Uh, that's the SARS-CoV virus, which uh, starts SARS, and then the MERS virus, and then the most recent uh, virus, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. And those cause potentially severe disease. So going over um, SARS, it was first encountered in 2002. Uh, it infects bats and palm civets, which is a small mammal, and humans. It uses ACE2 as a portal of entry. That's just like COVID-19. And then samples from the Guangdong wet market, just like the mar markets in Wuhan, found that the virus and palm civets were being sold there. Then um, since 2002, there's been about 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. So that's about a 10% fatality rate for SARS. And then the last known case was in 2004. So we haven't seen any ca new cases since 2004. So SARS is a contained virus at this point. Then more recently, there was a virus called MERS, which was first encountered in Saudi Arabia in 2012. And that one infects bats, camels, and humans. It uses a different protein in our cells as a portal of entry it's called dipeptidyl peptidase 4. And large viral titers are found in camels. So camels get MERS, but they have no symptoms from it. And they're not, they don't get sick from it, but they shed the virus and then they can give it to people. And in people, it's quite deadly. There's been 2,400 cases and 900 deaths, which is about a 35% fatality rate. And this virus continues to have um, infections that pop up every year. So it's not contained, but it's a kind of a very uh, minimal amount of cases every year, fortunately. And, you know Yes. I was just going to comment that that's very interesting. You know, these zoonoses are these animal to human transmission with coronavirus seems to be relatively common. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, those, the cold viruses are also thought to be zoonotic. And uh, these viruses, they basically, they attack different animals differently. So in bats, they don't really cause them to get sick but sometimes they transfer over and the viruses are able to have a small mutational event that lets them infect humans. And sometimes those, uh, those viruses cause very mild symptoms in humans, like the ones that cause the common cold. And sometimes it's quite deadly, like MERS. And then in this case, uh, which is COVID-19, it's not as deadly as SARS and MERS, fortunately, but it seems to be very transmissible. So it's, that's why we have now 4.5 million known cases and 300,000 deaths and the pandemic is ongoing. And the main difference between SARS, MERS and COVID-19 is that SARS and MERS have very uh, severe symptoms and the patients cannot transmit the disease before they have symptoms. So mm -hmm. when, you, when they get sick and if you isolate them, then they, you can protect them from giving it to other people. But COVID-19, there's a lot of data that shows that people can be completely asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic, but still be spreading the disease. Which of course makes it much more complicated and kind of pushes, if we are gonna, following this quarantine dilemma, it actually pushes us back further to minus zero, minus 10, if you will, as far as position and time of when yeah. we consider quarantine. 
Now, Pastor Mark, I have a question, a follow-up question to the zoonotic uh, terminology that Dr. Lee has talked to us about as far as coronaviruses are concerned. Is there anything, you know, we're looking at history, we're comparing history to consider how and what we should deal with as far as this dilemma of the quarantine. But I dare say even questions as far as distance from animals, you know, close proximity to animals, I dare say might even come into play here. Is there anything in the Bible or in history that might give us some indication that perhaps we need to consider um, keeping a, at least a limited distance between us and, and other animals. Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God gave the human race a uh, plant-based diet and fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables were the diet originally given to human beings. Um, throughout the Old Testament, just before the time of the flood, um, when you look at the flood, the catastrophe that destroyed much of the world, the entire world, or actually a worldwide flood. The animals that were taken into the ark, they came in by clean animals by sevens and unclean animals by two. Um, the Levitical laws, the ancient Jews looked back at the Levitical laws and uh, they saw from Leviticus 11, for example, that Unclean animals were never to be eaten. Shortly after the flood, God gave permission to eat clean animals. Um, of course, the vegetarian diet was always the best. It's rather fascinating, rather curious to see the outbreaks of COVID-19 in many of the meatpacking plants. You know, most yeah. said that's just because of close proximity. But I'm wondering what future studies will, will reveal. But the interesting thing to me, very specifically, in the Old Testament, if an animal died, um, that animal was known to be a disease carrier. And mm -hmm. the uh, Old Testament Jews were forbidden even to touch it. So I think we can learn a great deal, not simply from legalistic requirements uh, in the Old Testament, but I think there are principles, principles of isolation when you come to disease, principles of very cleanliness, principles of washing, and principles of dealing, before they even knew germ theory, they understood the importance of not handling the dead. And so that, I think, is, is quite significant. I, I agree. That's fascinating, Pastor Mark. You know, for those of you viewing right now, we have a very special gift that we want to provide to you. If you would like to have a personal conversation with myself and Pastor Mark, on any of these topics related to the quarantine dilemma, we are offering right now for the first 20 people that share the link of where you're watching right now, write in, tell us you share the link, and we will give you that opportunity of having a very interesting conversation with the two of us. So we just wanted to offer that to you right now, and it's in the live comment section of your uh, program. Well, I wanna come back to another question, Dr. Lee. There's, we already mentioned, you know, kind of briefly, there's a lot of theories out there, some of them somewhat controversial as to where in the world SARS-CoV-2 came from. Uh, we already mentioned, you know, some people talk about it being genetically modified. Was that purposeful? Was that not? People, we've talked now about the close proximity to animals and the fact that it was near a, a market, a wet market. Can you 
you tell us a little bit from science specifically? We want to investigate what's the likelihoods, first of all, what's the likelihood that SARS-CoV-2 was genetically modified by the Chinese government? Yeah, so I think this is something that's been in the news uh, for, you know, we've seen in the news cycle, like, was this thing genetically modified? Because we know that there is a virology lab located in Wuhan, China. So there was a paper published back in March in Nature Medicine that looked at this exact question. And what these people did is they analyzed the genetic um, sequence of the virus. And what they found out is they think it's very unlikely that it was genetically modified for two reasons. One is there is something called the spike protein. And the spike protein is the, um, the part of the virus that is used to, en to gain entry into our cells. And that spike protein is very good at binding to human ACE2. And so when they looked at the sequence, that spike uh, protein is not seen in any of our known viruses, but it works very well. If someone were to be wanting to genetically engineer a pathogen, they would use a spike protein that we already know of, or they would use a spike protein that our computer models would say would work. So this Bye. one... Why would they do that? Just thinking for easeability? I mean, why would they do that? Yeah, because like it's the way it works is like you can think of it as a key and a lock. And so if you know, if you already know of a key that works, why would you not use that key? So that would be like a previous virus like SARS that you know has a key that works. Or you have a computer program that tells you, well, if you make this key, this key should work. Otherwise, you're just randomly trying keys in a lock and seeing if one works which would be a very inefficient way of doing it. And so this one is like a key that does not exist before, before we found this one. And it's a key that would be, was predicted not to work, but it does work. So if someone was doing it, they would use a key that's known to work or a key that's predicted to work. Sure. And this one fits either one of those criteria. And then number two, there's, um, because it's a, such a large virus, it requires a pretty sophisticated reverse genetic engineering system to work with it. And those systems all have a very a distinctive backbone and a fingerprint. And this one doesn't display any uh, fingerprints of a, of a lab system that would have been used to, to make it. It looks very wild, like a wild virus. So those two things make it pretty unlikely that it was modified. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much. Now, obviously, there's been a, a differing approach that the globe has taken, correct? Um, oh, yeah. As far as how to respond to this situation. We have everything very diverse, everything from countries such as Korea um, to Sweden, and of course, the United States, Europe, Asia, North America, the United States have taken very different approaches. Can you just show us uh, very briefly some of the different effects of quarantine? as far as the different ways people have done it and the results that have come out of that. Sure. Um, I think when we discuss other countries' approaches to dealing with COVID-19, we have to understand that um, every country is a little bit different in its culture, in how accessible it is, like how much travel there's in and out of it, how dense the population is, and how, how, um, how willing the people are to deal with things like privacy invasion and, and tracing of contacts. 
So I think one solution doesn't work for all countries. So every country has a slightly different response that they felt was best for them. So, I mean, there's a lot of countries, we can't go through all the country's responses, but I thought that we would go through some of the countries that maybe we have heard of in the news. Now, Italy is one of the countries that we've all heard about because they were hit pretty early and pretty hard. And um, what their approach was is they thought that they could kind of modify the amount of quarantine that they were going to do based on how bad the disease was. So they were going to ratchet it up or down based on how bad it was. The problem being that there's like a two week lag from when you do an intervention to when you see the effect. So if you wait to for the data on the ground, then you're always kind of two weeks behind. Uh, um, what they did is they they started doing that and it rapidly went out of control. And at that point they realized, well, we need to just lock everything down. And they were very uh, invasive about locking things down. They had police on the streets, keeping people from going anywhere. But you see that they had a pretty large spike in March when we all heard about it in the news. And since their lockdown, they've had a downward trend and they're down to a very low level. And they're at about a quarter million cases, 30,000 deaths. And that's a death rate based on their population, about 500 per million death rate. Um, Germany is another country. They actually saw what was happening in Italy and they implemented their lockdown early. They were never overwhelmed and they're, they're kind of under control at this point. They're starting to open back up, which in their country is a point of, point of debate, but they've started to open back up. The USA, we, st we started our lockdown uh, in March as well. We had a ramp up. So you see, we start the lockdown. There's like a two week delay before you see the results of it. And we uh, have a plateau because we haven't had as stringent a lockdown as other countries have had. And so we're at 1.5 million cases. Now we are a very large country. So uh, comparatively that's, you know, could be not as many cases as Italy and such. And our death rate is um, 273 per million. Now, I think the two countries we wanna focus the most on is uh, South Korea and Sweden because those two countries are in the news quite a bit for the way that they handled it. And they handled it fairly differently. Um, so South Korea has a very compliant culture. The people are okay with uh, listening to authority and they have a kind of a collectivist mentality, which means that they care a little bit less about individual rights and more about the, how the group does. And so they had a very large outbreak actually very early on because there was um, a person involved with a large religious group in a city called Daegu and she spread it to like 10,000 people. They had a 10,000 person outbreak very early. And the way they decided to handle it is they were ready with massive testing very early on and they tested everyone. And what they did is they would test someone and then after they tested someone, they would find out if you're positive, they would ask them to hand over their cell phone. Using their cell phone data, they would figure out all the places they'd been in the previous two weeks. Wow. And they would find out all the people they were in contact in the previous two weeks, test all of them. And anyone who was positive, they would repeat that procedure and go back in time and trace wow. all the people. And then after they found out everyone who was um, positive, if you were positive but didn't have symptoms you were told to stay home and they would put a tracer app on your phone to make sure you stayed home if you had moderate symptoms they would send you to a hotel that the government had set up for that or if you were sick you they would send you to the hospital but they were very uh, invasive about tracing people and then isolating them and but 
that allowed them to keep most businesses open because they knew who was positive and who was not. They did not have any travel restrictions. They let people fly in from China and other places, except for the Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is. And they have mask wearing, and then they had daily updates from their public health officials every day on TV. Um, and so this is how, how it happened. So you see that Korea's spike happened back in February. They were hit very early, and then they, had, they got pretty rapid control, and they've had a very low simmer of cases. Um, and they're, and so you see their case logs, they were at one point the second highest country, but now they're very low. They're only 11,000 cases, 262 deaths, and they have a phenomenally low death rate of five per million. And so Sweden, uh, you will see in the news quite a bit. And because they've handled it um, fairly uniquely, their government has been pretty hands-off in terms of legal measures. They have their country with high social trust, so people tend to trust each other, and they have a relatively healthy younger population and a very robust healthcare system. So what the government did is they asked people, "Hey, there's this pandemic going around. We trust you guys. Can you like stay away from each other, work from home as much as possible?" And they said, "If you get sick, please stay home. Don't go to work. We will make sure you get your full salary if you stay home because you're sick." They got rid of bar service at restaurants so they didn't have um, strangers sitting next to each other at a bar, but restaurants stayed open. They canceled mass events, but there was no closure of borders. The elementary school stayed open because they thought that um, kids do very well and that elementary school is very important for kids, but they closed down the high schools and colleges in-person classes. But basically all businesses and shops remained open. And so when you look at the data out of Sweden, you can see people did um, follow the government recommendations. They're, the businesses and the uh, bars and the restaurants are not as busy, but people still go. And there's much less traffic um, and movement of people when you track them by Google Apps. And so what you see with Sweden is they do have many cases and they, they're doing this on purpose. They want herd immunity. They want people. They want before the we go further, huh? before we go further, many people are a little confused. We, we hear that terminology thrown around quite a bit. Herd immunity, what is herd immunity? So herd immunity is this idea that if you have enough people in your population that have been exposed either by a vaccine or by the actual disease, they then they have immunity, then they act kind of as a wall. So for example, like if I'm in a crowd of people and I have the disease, but most of the people around me are immune to it, and there's a few that are not, then I, they, the virus cannot get to the person that doesn't have immunity because most of the people are immune. And so the virus just doesn't have another host to get to. And I believe that's around 70%. Isn't that what the um, yeah, suggests yeah. about 70%? It's about, it, the, the herd immunity percentage depends on what, what's called the R-naught. Uh, you might have heard of that on the news as well. And that's basically tells you how transmissible the, the virus is. If, the, if it's more transmissible, you need a higher percentage. If it's less transmissible, you need a lower percentage. But it's somewhere between like 50 to 70% when you get herd immunity. So what okay. you see here is that Sweden actually has a relatively high death rate it's higher than the United States at 346. And they are having this kind of plateau where they're having about 600 new cases a day. 
And that is by design. They're not worried about that. They they want it to go through their population and they think their population, their healthcare system is strong enough that they can let it go through. And then this is what uh, is going on in America. In America, um, you can see that, that, that small states that have small populations like Montana and Vermont, so population, not land mass, but um, are, are, are th having things under control because they have relatively few cases and places like Alaska and Hawaii that have that can control movement in another state. Um, Alaska and Hawaii have very strict rules for visitors. You have to self-quarantine for 14 days if you go there and they're able to control it. Um, Michigan and New York have um, done some pretty severe lockdown measures and they're getting their things under control. But the vast majority of states are either in a ramping up phase or a um, plateau phase at this point. Well, it appears actually, if you could go back to that slide, I just wanted to make one quick comment. Um, when you consider the mean, um, as, as I was doing it on your first slide, you showed the uh -huh. states that were actually kind of went up the curve and came down. So they're uh -huh. clearly on the downward uh, fall. But yeah. there are a number of states that still are on the upward rise. And so the average seems to be this plateau, as you mentioned, which seems to follow more along the lines, I dare say, of the Swedish community seeking herd immunity. Would, would yeah. that be your assessment? I think what's going on is that um, that Sweden and America have pretty much similar levels of lockdown. Sweet, the Swedish population did it voluntarily, and the American population is doing it more by the government closing down businesses. But I think the effectiveness, if you if you think about all the people still going grocery shopping and things like that, um, is about the same. So we, we're having the same trajectory. So we're probably heading towards, whether by design or by default, towards herd immunity. At Pastor Mark, I have a question for you. Clearly, you know, we have a situation that um, is different uh, depending on what state you're from, what country you're from. Uh, uh, clearly, the way that Korea handled things was very different than Sweden, and I dare say very different than the United States. But the, the issue with quarantine, it's challenging. As we said at the beginning, it's not just quite as cut and dry as, yes, we want to decrease the mortality associated with COVID-19. Yes, we want to decrease uh, the risk of those at, um, in the higher population risk category. But what about the patients who are not necessarily coming down with COVID? They're just getting the effects of quarantine, such as Social distancing causing an increase in anxiety, depression, alcohol abuse, drug dependence, even physical abuse, domestic violence, and child abuse. Pastor Finley, have you? What, what is your take on 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 that particular topic? Well, all child abuse, all domestic violence, is certainly a very very serious issue that cannot be taken lightly. I think one of the issues with um, parents who have children who are socially isolated now, kids who are not in school, for example, it's, I think, incredibly important that parents and children are able to have open discussions about COVID-19, open discussions about uh, their inability to be at school and why. I think parents... To, to be able to talk to their children, explain it to their children. And also, I've talked to a number of uh, parents with young families during the COVID-19 uh, crisis, 
And these parents are taking opportunities to bond with their children. In fact, one mother said, you know, I really kind of like this because I'm having a greater opportunity to bond with my children, playing games with their kids, um, playing in the yard with them, uh, having an opportunity if you come from a faith background to share the word of God with your kids. Um, there's so many opportunities, I think, that we have to bond with our children during this time of crisis. You know, it's really interesting when you look at the biblical material. There are a number of times in Scripture that we see 40-day, what you could call, quote-unquote, quarantines. Um, Jesus, you know, spent 40 days in the wilderness, um, and it was a time of prayer, a time of testing. Moses spent 40 days uh, in praying before the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. So you can look, I think, at quarantine in one of two ways. One, you can look at it as isolationism and uh, a, a time of frustration, anxiety, tension. The other way you can look at it as a time of meditation, a time of prayer, a time to reevaluate your life, a time to reevaluate your family priorities, a time to draw closer to your children. So I think it's a mindset, Leila, of where what we are thinking about and taking something that could be quite negative and using it at a time to bond with our families. That, that's fascinating. And Dr. Steve, um, have you seen anything in the research to show um, the, the risk of mortality with quarantine? And especially in light of what Pastor Mark is saying, I think that's so applicable. I, I'm just thinking personally, I, I'm a single mom with four little ones, and I've actually taken this opportunity, like you said, to do some of the things I haven't had the opportunity to do before, like plant a garden and take care of all kinds of things that needed to be taken care of. But Dr. Lee, have you seen anything in the research that might indicate that if we don't have that positive mentality, that we could actually be increasing our mortality on the other side of the stick as well? Yeah, absolutely. There is um, there is uh, several papers on it. There was one recently that was uh, that's in preprint. They were looking at Swiss data and they looked specifically at suicide, depression, alcohol use, and domestic violence, child violence, change in marital status, and social isolation. And they basically, according to their mathematical model, they said that about two percent of the population will be greatly affected by some by a stay-at-home order. And on average, that 2% would lose about nine years of life mm. um, because of that. And then there was another, uh, what's called a systematic review of many papers that was published in 2011, so well before this whole COVID-19 thing. And they showed that unemployment itself gives you a hazard ratio of 1.63. And what that means is that, let's say that as a, like a middle-aged healthy guy, my risk of dying in the next five years is 1%. If I have a hazard ratio of 1.63, it means I am 63% more likely to die in the next five years. So instead of being 1%, I'm 1.63% likely to die. So unemployment itself has some mortality risks. So not just the economic risks of a shutdown, but there's a lot of mental health and um, you know public health risks of a prolonged shutdown. And that's you another, know, I'm sorry, go ahead, Pastor Mark. You know, Ella, I think to pick up on what uh, Dr. Lee has said, that I think it becomes quite 
um, critical to be sensitive to what's going on in families, mm-hmm. uh, sensitive to signs of suicide, sensitive to depression in children, sensitive to marriage difficulties. And because, as Dr. Lee was mentioning, unemployment can bring not only financial and economic challenges, but it can bring extremely um, challenges that have to do with attitudes, with discouragement, depression. Um, About 16% of America currently, of the United States, are on unemployment. That may go up to 20%. About 3 million people, of course, filed for unemployment in a a single week. We have about 30 million people unemployed in this country right now. Um, And I was looking at one of the United Nations studies by Dr. David Beasley, and Dr. Beasley put it this way. He said that we may be facing in the developing countries a famine, and these were his words, of biblical proportions. Because if you have an economic crisis in the developing world, that means often less aid for the developed world. Right. So how do, you, how do you approach this from a historical perspective? How do you approach this from the theological perspective? Do you just throw up your hands and say, well, nothing really can be done about this? From a theological perspective, I think there are two major issues. Number one is the issue of personal trust in God, um, where you look at some of the statements in Scripture. They are so incredibly reassuring. Philippians Paul writes to Philippians, the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. There is something about trust, something about bedrock faith that enables us to transcend the, um, transcend the challenges of life. I was looking at another study that was done on how does faith impact a person in poverty? How does faith impact a person in poverty? And the study indicated that if you are a person who is in poverty and you have faith, your life expectancy is much longer because you even in a developing world learn to get along with much less. So there is something about faith that releases positive chemical endorphins in the mind that enables the body to respond in health. Now, I do not mean to minimize in any way famine, and that's where I come in the second area. So the first way I think, I think you have to deal with this from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective on two levels. The first level is the level of personal faith. The second level is the level of corporate responsibility where the Christian church has a responsibility to minister to those in need. If you look back at crises and plagues, the Christian church was the first to establish hospitals. And I have something just really amazing I discovered the other day. I was going back and taking a look at the plague that took place in 260 AD. And there was a bishop, Dionysius, who was the leader of the church in Corinth at the time. This is uh, 3rd century. And um, he comments on how Christians ministered to those in need during the plague. I'm going to read you something from the 3rd century that's fascinating. 
And he's, he's writing about this, and he says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to the every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Wow. So the, the Christian ethic is to plunge into the middle of need. So whether that is depression, where, a, where the Christian ethic is to invite somebody to their home and, and provide a meal for them, and provide a safe place of refuge, whether that is providing food for the poor and food pantries, whether that is a providing medical care. And not long ago, I interviewed a number of nurses and doctors and um, EMT emergency medical technicians from New York City. And I was amazed at these godly people, how they plunged into human need. So I think the biblical ethic is twofold. Number one, a personal faith that enables you to transcend what's going on around you. And second, a Christian ethic that realizes that the image of God is formed in every human being and that we have a responsibility to help them physically, mentally, and spiritually. Absolutely. That, that's profound. And, you know, as I think back to this current situation and where, where we're sitting, we've, we've discussed some of the dilemmas related to the quarantine situation. I think there's one last thing that I, I wanted to bring out, and it's the question of vaccines. You know, we, there's about over 100 vaccines that are being studied right now. Dr. Lee, just very briefly, what is your take? Do we Are we likely to have a vaccine that's able to provide to us the immunity that smallpox did? And if not, I think that leaves us where Pastor Mark just talked about, that having that faith and understanding that God has a plan. But tell us a little bit about vaccines, please. Well, I don't think I can predict the future on whether a vaccine will work. I certainly hope we get one. But um, just looking from historical data, the fastest vaccine that was ever produced was the mumps vaccine in 1967. And that took four years. And that's the mm -hmm. fastest we've ever done it. The most recent major vaccine we developed was one for Ebola. That took 19 years to develop. And SARS, we've been, they've been working on a SARS vaccine since 2012 and a MERS vaccine. I mean, a MERS vaccine since 2012. And we don't have one. And there has never been a vaccine for a coronavirus in the history of mankind ever successfully made. Now, there hasn't been the amount of scientific input and funding and governmental pressure to do it like now. So it, it, we haven't tried as hard as we are now to do it. So that doesn't mean that it's impossible. But there's currently eight that are in clinical studies and 110 that are in preclinical studies. Um, but I, in just my opinion, I think this idea that we're going to have a vaccine in a year and a half is pretty unlikely. Um, so I, I don't think that, and that, that's what Sweden has said too. They're saying it's very unlikely we're just going to do immunity norm um, the natural way. Which is hence why they're doing the herd immunity. And that right. also leads me, Pastor Mark, you know, we've, we just finished the medical symposiums and we've talked about optimizing one's immunity using the immune system, I dare say, that God gave us, um, intended for us to use, and even gave us a special diet all the way back in Eden that helps us to optimize our immunity. So if, again, if you haven't seen those programs, go to awr.org forward slash health, 
and access those archived videos. Now, Pastor Mark, coming back to history, because as we delve into this quarantine dilemma, history really is the key. In fact, one of my favorite authors had a statement, we have nothing to fear for the future, lest we forget how God has led us in the past. And as I think about that, I think about the germ theory that came about in 1861 with Louis Pasteur. Before that, before we understood germ theory, were there cases of quarantine? And if so, how were those taken about? Well, the first public health officer was Moses. And uh, Moses, as a public health officer, gave some very interesting guidelines when it came to quarantine. One guideline was on leprosy. Now, just imagine there's at least a million and a half, probably two million Israelites that leave Egypt. They're living in very close proximity. Uh, a disease can spread so incredibly rapidly through their camp. And so in the book of Leviticus, chapter 30, 13, um, verse 45 and 46. Now, the priest, incidentally, the religious leaders were also the medical directors in those days. And so it says, now the leper on whom the sore is on his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days that he has this sore. He shall dwell alone and his habitation shall be outside the camp. So the first quarantine we find is this leper is taken from Israel. He's placed outside the camp. He is checked by the priests on a regular basis until he is able to return to the camp. Now, there were a couple other levels in ancient Israel. There were times that the priest would check a person, and if indeed they had a disease— that was minor, not significant, they would be separated or isolated for seven days. There were other times that if mildew was forming in a house and the priest would check it, that house would be cleansed and left alone with nobody living in it. And then it would be, um, it would be either demolished if it still had the mildew and, or it would be um, allowed to back in. Now, but the interesting thing is, Layla, let me give you two historical, um, two his historical experiences of quarantine. The first time we find quarantine uh, in uh, other than biblical times that's of any significance at all is during the bubonic plague in 1347. During that time um, in Venetia, the uh, sailors came in on boats and many of the, some of these boats came in and 90% of the sailors were dead already. The others were, had raging fever. And so they began to quarantine these sailors first for 30 days, then for 40 days. And these sailors were quarantined to help control the disease. Now you come from about 1365 to 1665, during that 300-year period, every 20 years in Europe, there was another major outbreak of the bubonic plague. In England, in the 16, 15th century, in London, 20% of the population was killed. But here's what they did. They put a bale of hay on a pole in front of a person's house, and that person was quarantined. And if anybody from that house came into the city, they had to carry a white pole. 
And so we, so we have these historical um, stories of the attempt to control disease by public health methods. But the interesting thing to me as a theologian is that you have the roots of these in ancient scripture. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it sounds very similar what they did in the bubonic plague to what took place in Leviticus and even the 40 days. I mean, I must I must ask the question, is there some relationship with that 40 days and 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days in the Bible? Did the Venetians come up with that those days based on the Bible as well? Well, you know, Leo, we can't know for sure, but we know this. Moses is in the wilderness praying 40 days. There's 40 days and nights before of the rain falling during the flood. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. 40 years, David reigns, 40 years, Saul reigns, 40 years, Solomon reigns. So I'm sure, and you know, our Catholic friends have this 40 year, 40 days of Lent in Venetia was a Catholic area. The word quarantine, you know what that word means? It means testing, a time of testing followed by new life. And it comes from the word quarenta, which is 40. So the very word quarantine has its linguistic roots in quarenta, which is 40. So I'm not sure what biblical significance there was in that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was very significant biblical significance in that whole idea of quarantine. That, that's amazing, Pastor Mark. That's absolutely amazing. You know, I'm, I, I know there are some other questions that we want to get to, but perhaps in our question and answer session. But I, I have another question for you, Pastor Mark. Um, as we look at this and we're hit, you know, we're, we're dealing with obviously from science, Dr. Lee, we're dealing with the quarantine dilemma, social distancing, isolation, whatever word we want to call it. As, as we're looking at that and we're looking at actually seeing some history going all the way back to Leviticus in relation to quarantine. Could it be that perhaps this might even, like you said before, it depends on how we look at it from our own mental perspective. And what kind of peace can we have in this unsettling time? Well, first, we recognize that God is not the author of sickness or disease that this is not some kind of plague that God inflicts upon people. God is a God of love, but we live in a broken world. In the book of Romans chapter eight, it says the whole creation groans until now. In this broken world, God created a beautiful world, a world filled with perfection, but he gave human beings the freedom of choice. If you take away the freedom of choice, you take away the opportunity to love. And if you take away the opportunity to love, you take away the ability to be happy. So because God wanted beings that were loving and responded not as robots, he gave them the capacity to choose. When our first parents made that choice to listen to the voice of the evil one who had rebelled against God in heaven in this great controversy between good and evil, God didn't create a demon. He created a magnificent angel, but he gave him the ability to choose. Mm -hmm. So when this world was plunged into rebellion or sin, separated from God, we live in a broken world and pathogens grow in that world and germs and bacteria and viruses grow and sickness comes. Where is God in all this? God is with us. In, in sickness. He's working with every medical personnel who's ministering in love. He's working through the hearts and minds of 
his people to develop the best modalities to deal with disease. But where is he when a person gets sick? He's by their side, giving them hope, giving them encouragement. And I think one of the things that may kill more people than COVID-19 is worry and fear. And I think worry and fear spreads more rapidly even than COVID-19. There's a wonderful passage in scripture in Isaiah 41, verse 10, that says this, fear not, for I am with you. Be not afraid. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. And so we can find peace in a time of storm. We can find comfort in a time of disaster in COVID-19 by a trusting relationship with God who will never forsake us and never leave us. That's, that's beautiful, Pastor Finley. Do you have any closing remarks for our viewers for today and a closing prayer, if you don't mind? Surely. Whatever you are going through in your life right now, it could be a problem at home in your marriage. You may be struggling with alcoholism, you may be struggling with discouragement, or you may be facing the onslaught of disease. There is a God that cares, that loves, that'll give you the power to overcome whatever attitude or habit that you're struggling with. And as we pray, you can have the absolute assurance of God's love and care. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the opportunity of knowing you. As we look back in history, we see that these plagues are nothing that is have caught you by surprise. That we live in a world of good and evil. We live in a world of disease and sickness. But you are there. There are principles of health in the Bible that build our immune systems to keep us well. A good diet, adequate water and fresh air and exercise and rest. We thank you for those principles, but also enable us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the hurt going on in other people's lives and help us to recognize the image of God created in every human being and plunge into this world's need to make a difference for your kingdom in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you viewers for joining us for Level Up. Again, this was our very first program, but we are so happy to have the opportunity of talking with you and investigating further. Before we go to our question and answer session, I do want to invite you to next Sunday's program. It's going to be very exciting. It's called Self-Attack, Fight Back. Self-attack, fight back. It's about autoimmune disease. We're hearing a lot about the children being affected with this Kawasaki-like syndrome and some other syndromes that are affecting adults called vasculitis, resulting in blood clots. So you're not going to want to miss next week when we talk about your own body attacking itself and how you can fight back and win in this battle. Okay, well, at this time, we are excited to offer some question and answer. The very first question that came in, and this is to both our panelists, before we answer the one on your screen, does closing churches and wearing masks limit our religious liberty and our freedom of conscience? And I'm gonna start that one with Pastor Mark, and then I wanna come to Dr. Lee and have you answer that from a scientific perspective, if you don't mind. 
Well, from a religious perspective, it's very fascinating to notice, uh, Layla, Dr. Layla, two things. First, if you look at Korea, the f- first person who began to transmit the COVID-19 did so in a church from a church service. It was a large gathering, about 10,000 people, and it just spread rapidly. Just in the news today, breaking news, an individual attended a Mother's Day celebration in a church, and that person tested positive. There were 180 people there, and that's spreading. So what is the Christian ethic? The Christian ethic is love your neighbor as yourself. So that if I love my neighbor as myself, what do I want to do? I don't want to be thinking about myself, but I want to protect my neighbor from a disease that I may have, even if I'm asymptomatic and and not transmit that disease. So wearing a mask is an act of graciousness and love, not simply to protect me, but to protect my neighbor as well. Um, Quarantine is an act of love toward my neighbor. So that's when it comes to masks. Now, what about church services? In the book of Romans, it says, respect authorities, the higher authorities. And um, so as Christians, we don't violate a government mandate. Indeed, unless that government mandate is contrary, very specifically to one of the commandments of God. And so there are many other ways to have worship beside meeting together. Now, if the government said you cannot worship that then violates the very commandments of God, and we could not accept that. But there are many other ways to worship. You can work, we have, in our church, we have online worship, and every week we'll have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people that are watching the online services. I spoke this last week of how to survive an economic crisis, um, and we have a web page, Hope Lives 365, and people go there. So from a spiritual perspective, the basis of all of this, the basis of self-quarantine, the basis of masks, the basis of not meeting corporately in a church is love your neighbor as you love yourself and desire your neighbor to be well. That's fascinating. Dr. Lee, uh, very briefly, do you think in your scientific evaluation that masks are beneficial? If, if we know it's not a a violation of our religious liberty. In fact, it's an opportunity of, of exercising our liberty and helping others. What What is your perspective on masks? Yeah, I think that a lot of people misunderstand masks as a way of protecting themselves. Masks are not a way of protecting yourself. Masks are a way of protecting others from you. So there are two different kinds of masks. There's an N95 mask. Those are somewhat protective of the wearer. and But that's not what we're asked to wear out in public. We're asked to wear just cloth masks or regular masks. And people are like, well, we, you know, they hear on the news reports, well, viruses go right through those masks. Yes, they do. That's true. Um, And so what they are mainly doing is if you're coughing or talking, little droplets come out of your mouth and those masks stop that. And so it reduces the amount of virus that you're shedding if you have it. And that's important because this disease 
you may be in a carrier of the virus and not know it. You may feel completely fine and you have the virus and you may be spreading it to other people. So the mask is not to protect you. It's to protect others from you. Excellent. Thank you so much. We have another question. Um, it's come in. How do vitamins help the body fight the virus? Well, that would take a really long time. I appreciate that question. It's an amazing question. What I would ask you to do is please refer to the medical symposium again on awr.org forward slash health and access those programs. But in essence, you are going to want to attend next week where Pastor Mark and myself and Dr. Ugana Woods are going to be addressing the topic of vitamins and nutrition. So don't miss out next week as well. Have they answered the question about possibly it coming back in the fall? And what I believe this question refers to is a second wave. We've heard a lot about that in the news. The CDC has been warning about that. Dr. Fauci has been talking about that. Dr. Lee, what's your opinion as far as a second wave in the fall? Yeah. So again, predicting the future is always dangerous business. But if we go by, uh, you know, the, the thing that we always talk about is the 1918 pandemic. That one had three waves. The first wave was pretty small and people thought it was not a big deal. The second wave is where like more than 90% of the deaths came. And so the first wave ended in the summer, which is about now. And the second wave hit in October. And that was the big wave. So if we know that a very small percentage of the population has been exposed. We do not have herd immunity at this point. There's not a vaccine. We are starting to release uh, ease restrictions. It's highly likely that we're going to experience a second wave. Excellent. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, this one's for Pastor Mark. What's the danger of Christians spreading conspiracy theories about vaccines? Um, before we answer that particular topic, very briefly, um, Dr. Lee, you mentioned as far as the vaccinations and the likelihood of it not being super uh, promising, at least by fall, when we're talking about everyone going back to school and those kinds of things. But Pastor Mark, what's this conspiracy theory? What's the an answer to this question? Is, is this a concern as a theological perspective and even for those of us um, just in regular life? Let's look back at the history of vaccines and raise this question. What impact have vaccines had on the health of this world and have they made a difference? If you look at the smallpox vaccine uh, that uh, was developed, uh, it has saved millions and millions of lives. If you look at the polio vaccine that was developed, it saved millions of lives. Um, now, um, do we need to be careful with the rigorous scientific um, testing of vaccines? Definitely. Uh, are there dangers and could there be dangers? Um, possibly. Um, as Dr. Lee has clearly pointed out, vaccines at times take four years, 10 years, 15 years to develop. And um, so as far as conspiracy theories in vaccines, I personally do not put much stock in them. I think we have to look at rigorous science and deal with the scientific aspects and look at the benefit that vaccines have been to the human race throughout the years. Now, from a biblical perspective, the Bible does not teach that, that some antichrist power is going to use a vaccine 
to control the mind of people. What the Bible does teach when it talks about, very frankly, the mark of the beast and the seal of God, it talks about a commitment to Christ, a commitment to biblical truth, a commitment in the mind to his way of life. So this whole issue of the Antichrist and the beast power is not dealing with control through a vaccine. It's rather dealing with the control of your mind through the deceptions of Satan. Very, very well said. And Dr. Lee, I know I've heard you and I've had this discussion as well on many occasions. As far as conspiracy theories in general, what would be your recommendation um, from a scientist's perspective on how we can delve into finding out the actual truth of the matter as opposed to perhaps another theory that might take us down the wrong path? Yeah, I think um, this is a very modern problem where we have so much access to information that it's very easy for people to cherry pick information and piece a, a narrative together that puts forth some kind of conspiracy theory. And it's, it's very easy to do that. And you can find videos and presentations that are very compelling and they, they, they talk to you and they have these facts and these facts are true, but they omit the facts that don't support their side and you just get the facts that support their story. And so it's, it's a difficult problem. I think if people are actually interested in that, they need to talk to people that are experts that they trust, that can vet the information and um, try to go to the primary sources if you can. But in, and I in, would, in terms of, I was in terms of vaccines, I would say that um, the reason these vaccines take so long to develop is because when we develop certain drugs, we always test them. There's, uh, there's uh, testing in medical science called phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. And basically the phase three trial is the large trial where they try to figure out all the side effects and stuff. Um, with small drugs, they, they will accept um, greater numbers of side effects because you're only giving it to like, you know, 100,000 people, 10,000 people. But a vaccine you're going to give to millions of people. So even if uh, something gives you a 0.1% bad side effect, 0.1% of a million people is still a lot of people. So vaccines, they have to be very rigorously tested so that their side effect profile is extremely low. And that's why it takes so long to develop these things. Yeah. Well, and I just want to make a plug for Level Up programs as well. That is the purpose of Level Up. We want to provide medical experts and theological experts to answer your tough questions so that we can have sound answers. Well, this is our last question for the evening. What can we expect from church experience after the quarantine period is over? Pastor Mark, I will give that question to you. Quarantine has in many ways created within people the desire for fellowship. And, you know, if you have not been if you've been used to attending church and you're not attending church during this quarantine period, there is that longing to be with fellow believers, that longing to pray together, to sing together, to study the word of God together. Also, I think there are many people who feel touched by the spirit of God during this time, and they are looking for a communal, a group, a community religious experience. I expect after COVID-19 is over that churches will be filled. I really do. 
I, mm. I really expect that there will be a period of time that there'll be a spiritual renewal. And this is an opportunity, I believe, to deeply study the word of God, to really have a faith that is more than superficial, more than emotional, but a faith that is anchored in Christ, anchored in the word of God. And so I am very optimistic about the future. I believe that God takes disasters like we've had in COVID-19, that God takes difficult circumstances and he brings about out of them something positive. God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. And I can't wait to see what God is going to do in the near future. Thank you so much, Pastor Mark. Yes. And thank you both Dr. Steve and Pastor Mark for joining us as our experts today. It has been a fascinating discovery investigating the quarantine dilemma. I am excited again, like we already mentioned, to again announce next Sunday. Again, the title is Self-Attack, Fight Back. At 8 p.m. Eastern, we are not going to want to miss out together, meeting together and investigating this question. Until then, we wish you God's blessing. Stay well, stay healthy, and stay happy.